Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. Um, This is one of our special breakout episodes that we are doing in the wake of COVID-19. My name is Tiffany. I am one of your patient co-hosts today, and I am joined by another fellow patient co-host. I'm excited to introduce to you. We've got Matt Eisman, the host of American Ninja Warrior, and also a longtime advocate yourself. Hi, Matt. Hi, Tiffany. I got to say, it's exciting to be on the breakout session during the outbreak pandemic. <laughs> Odd choice of words for this uh, this podcast, but good to be here and excited for our other guest. Yes, we are not alone here. We also have Dr. Al Kim from Washington University. He's a rheumatologist and assistant professor and founder and director of the Lupus Clinic. Hi, Dr. Kim. Hi, Tiffany. I'm so happy to be back on the podcast again. Yes. And really uh, pleased to meet Matt. Likewise, Doc. So this is also, we're just wrapping this episode into a lot of things. There's also on AI Arthritis Voices 360. We have another series that we started with Dr. Kim called Roomy Rounds. And that concept is that patients come together with doctors and other rheumatology professionals to sit at the table and have conversations as equals so that we can talk about the problems that are going on and come up with some solutions. And that's a lot of what we're going to do today. So we wanted to talk about what's happening here, not here in just your city, your state, your province. It is your country. It is all over the world. And this is a very scary time. It's a very interesting time. And things are evolving, changing daily, if not hourly. Uh, So we wanted to use this opportunity to hopefully talk about some of the concerns that both patients and rheumatologists are are having at this time. I'm going to go ahead and start by just asking Dr. Kim, what are some of the things that you're seeing coming in from patients? Are you getting a lot of questions or seeing a lot of traffic, things coming in at your office? We are seeing a lot of questions, not just from patients, but from each other. I think there's so much that's unknown about this particular virus. We've had similar viral outbreaks by coronaviruses before. Uh, SARS is one of them. Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS is another one. Mm -hmm. But nothing with the spread and the breadth of infection. And also, this infection seems to behave a little differently than some of the other coronavirus infections, we think. Again, we're using a lot of, um, I don't know, perhaps, supposedly, type of word simply because we're dealing with, a, with an unknown here. And that, I think, has put a great deal of doubt and fear in a lot of patients, but also providers. You know, you're, you're right on that. And I, I think at a time when there isn't a lot of information, we're all seeking out information and, and trying to find some answers so that we can at least get under control a little bit. Matt, I know we were talking right before we started airing this, and, and you were expressing a concern, and it's a question that's come up a lot in our community. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and maybe ask Dr. Kim for some answers on that question. Yeah, well, look, you know, we, we for those of us with autoimmune diseases, as Dr. Kim knows, a lot of the treatments are to downregulate the immune system. In other words, make us immune compromised. And there were a couple of questions I, I had. I've been on these medications now for 17 years. But how, you know, in an otherwise healthy person, not assuming what other damages we may have had from our autoimmune diseases, when we look at this, when we talk about downregulating our immune system, have we seen any data? I assume this is too soon with this novel coronavirus, but in previous ones, how susceptible we really are 
because of our, our treatments? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Matt. So I think in general, viral infections tend to wreak more havoc in those who are immunosuppressed, whether that is endogenous, either born with it or acquired simply because you're on certain meds that suppress your immune system. Each virus, though, behaves a little bit differently. With this one, we don't have any specifics, so we are relying on historical viral infections as a reference point. Um, what's a little bit unique about this particular type of virus, though, is that there's a subset, and we are not 100% sure how big of a subset, that actually have too much inflammation. And there is some anecdotal data that suggests that maybe immunosuppression helps those people. Now, that's not to be confused by the other people who don't have that particular hyperinflammatory state. Their immunosuppression may be harmful. So this is a interesting balance. And again, I think as a field, we have to do a better job of identifying what those risk factors are to be able to give specific personalized information at the end of one level for each individual to be able to say, okay, this is what your risks are. This is what we need to do with your meds. And then, and they may be different than the next RA patient or the next lupus patient or the next spondy patient. So that, that really tails into what my next question would have been is when we're immune suppressed, do we go off the meds? Because I know that's, for me, for me, I'm on one of the longer term infusions where I'm good for 10 weeks. So I can't, you know, until my next dose, which is in a month and a half, there's nothing I can do. But I know for other people who are doing those every other day injections, onboarding it, you know, has there been any recommendation? Obviously, it is on a case by case basis, but have there been any recommendations for people to, to get off those meds? So unfortunately, no recommendations yet. And I think um, what's going to be apparent within the next hopefully couple months, three months is increasing amount of data regarding this. There's actually a global alliance right now of over 200 or 250 rheumatologists and patient advocates, such as Tiffany, have joined into this, I can't remember, the Global COVID Rheumatology Alliance or something like that where essentially we're building this global registry to be able to document every patient that has potential exposure or may have been potentially infected or confirmed and document the outcomes and then try to do some analyses to determine more in retrospect though, all right, it's not gonna help right now, but more in retrospect, sure. what were the risk factors? So that again, it adds to our armamentarium. I think though, in general, what we've been recommending to many of our patients is that to continue the immunosuppression. And the reason why is that in general, if you have to be on prednisone, particularly higher doses of prednisone, let's say greater than 20 milligrams a day, that is probably one of the worst things you could do to your immune system. So I'd much rather be on virtually every other medicine that is used in rheumatic diseases than high dose prednisone. There is clear data, and I think the best data is with like hepatitis B and some other viruses like that where uh, prednisone just causes the virus to completely go out of control. It proliferates at a, a breakneck speed. And so that ends up causing a lot more uh, morbidity and mortality, unfortunately. So what we're really trying to do in this day and age is if you have to use prednisone, use the lowest dose possible, but the best situation is to just not use it at all. Mm -hmm. And we're going to accept some consequence, uh, although much lower risk of consequence with the other immunosuppressions. So that's what I've been recommending. Mm -hmm. The other thing with that is there's so many variants of the disease per individual. So if a person would go off of them, some would have a very high risk of developing severe disease activity. Is that, I mean, is that correct? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think the one thing we don't ever evaluate because we don't have tools for this is what we call clinically immune fitness. So everyone's immune system is at a different level. Some of them are just a little bit lower than other people just at baseline. So when you hit it with a stimulus, like a viral infection, you know, you, then you bump that up. And so people with really high fitness may actually get in trouble with a severe coronavirus infection. Whereas those with lower uh, immune fitness, they may not get in as much trouble, but they also experience more common infections throughout their lifetime. So again, this is something that we're aware of because there are so many genes, there's so many different types of proteins and cells that affect the overall immune system. It's something we can't even really model. Sure. So, yeah, so this is something, again, this is 22nd century concepts that we're talking about here, but this is really something that we've been trying to think about as we go through this process. Well, outside of the medicines, are there recommendations in terms of 
vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, emergency, airborne, any of those things that you're recommending for people who are in this questionable category, vulnerable category? Oh, no hard recommendations, but I think yeah. a lot of this is going to be what patients feel most comfortable doing. Not that there is data for first vitamin C yet, all right? And there may be, who knows? But I'm not going to be one to tell a patient, don't do it because there's no data. I don't know, right? Right. And so if the patient believes in the concept, there's actually good data showing that they should do it because the area is going to be um, what we call a placebo response, but I want to leverage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I was hearing, not only spreading within the community, but even on the news recently, and again, this is ever evolving, there's a big question with patients, should I be taking ibuprofen? Is it dangerous? If I do have COVID-19, would that cause it to be a, a worse case? There's so much misinformation and mixed information And now we're all talking. So is there anything you can weigh in on that specifically? Okay, so let's talk about ibuprofen and other NSAIDs, Mm non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So this also includes things like naproxen or Aleve. And of course, ibuprofen is going to be Advil. Um, But also the antimalarials, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, which was just announced earlier today by the government as a potential treatment. So I think both stories share a common theme is that the reporting of the data, the data actually potentially suggests there could be some harm with NSAIDs and there could be some benefit with these antimalarials. Now, the details are critically important when you are trying to interpret these data. I think it's more striking in the antimalarial story where some of the best data, so there's a study that got released, uh, published yesterday showing that a combination of an antibiotic called azithromycin with the antimalarial hydroxychloroquine substantially reduced viral titers and increased patient outcomes. Part of the problem with that particular study, I'm going to have to give a shout out to Mike Putman, who's at Northwestern University. He's on faculty there, and he has a really good podcast for rheumatologists, but also patients should listen, called EB Room or Evidence-Based Room. So his Twitter handle is actually at EB Room, R-H-E-U-M, for those who want to follow him. And he's actually going to do a podcast tonight on antimalarials and uh, COVID. But the azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine data is fraught by the fact that the authors did not include patients who stopped the drug or died or were in the ICU. And the reason why is because they were, un- they were unable to complete the course of medicine mm. as the study design mandated. So you, by definition, they excluded those data. All right. So there are these nuances is going to be impossible to convey quickly to the public. All right. But if you just open up COVID, one of the first things you're going to see are that antimalarials are the are the cure. All right. Let's slow down. All right. These details are going to be important. It may be true. It may be not true. The problem is that the data shows one thing, but the interpretation is very limited because of constraints. And I think the same thing with ibuprofen, too, or, or naproxen. Um, I think there is anecdotal data. And again, antidote is not data. Plural of antidote is still not data because there's a lot of recall and sampling biases that may skew things. The, be- the beautiful thing about good clinical studies is that you're sampling every patient from the beginning to end without selecting out anyone or biasing the study in any way. So we have biases in these studies right now because they're rushed. By definition, had to be rushed. Right. And there, but but um, I think the only benefit from these is that it does open up these possibilities of harm or benefit. They need to be investigated, no doubt. Whether it's actionable, like the government had made earlier today, I feel very uncomfortable by that. Really? Oh yeah, because the yeah. data doesn't support it. The data does not support that decision because this is narrative spinning. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, they are ignoring the nuances and the confounders, as we call it, or alternate explanations of why the data showed what it showed. So they're saying, oh, it showed it, it got better because you gave hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine or antimalarials. Actually, there are other reasons, and potentially it's because of biases unintentionally put into the study by the authors that skewed the data to make it look better than it was. Right. So again, this is really 
hardcore, super nuanced look at data and how, especially researchers, how we interact with information and knowing that the sphere of a fact is very limited. And then it's the interpretation or the guess world is where there's a lot of variability. Mm-hmm. And so my interpretation is different than the narrative right now. Well, Dr. Kim, I think what you're spelling out is a problem that everybody, not just in the rheumatologic community or even in America, I think around the world, the struggle is where do we get this accurate information? I know a few days ago, I had friends who were all swearing. They had a friend who knew a friend who was in the military who just got out of a briefing. The entire country was going on lockdown. Prepare for this. And you see these rumors get spread. And you know, as Mark Twain said, as the truth gets out, the lies spread around the world, right? So you know, one of the struggles, I think, is for your patients, everyone can't call their doctor. Where are you directing people? I mean, the CDC website seems to be a good place, but particularly for rheumatologic patients, for autoimmune patients, is there any resource you recommend or is it just follow the guidelines for the general public as of now? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Matt, because so the general guidelines are probably the best place to start. But what's been going on is I've been actually telling my own patients to get on Twitter and follow me. And again, every healthcare provider can't do this. They maybe don't want to engage with social media or Twitter is not the right platform. Um, I don't do Instagram. I don't do TikTok. I mean, it's just the way it is. My Dr. Kim, you'd kill it on TikTok. (laughs) I probably would. (laughs) But, you know, so I, I, again, so my audience and my sphere of influence is already limited. But be that as it may, I, I tell them to follow and try to engage with me through that. Um, what we, We're about to actually put out a, another paper showing that while most of the patients have access to internet, most of them use it to get information about lupus, and that's the disease I study. One of the things that a lot of our patients are frustrated about is they're not sure they can trust the source, exactly what you're talking about, mm-hmm. Matt. And they actually want people like me, like their physician, to actually provide that information directly to the patient. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cause a lot of redundancy of work amongst healthcare professionals. But if that's what the patients need, that's what they're going to get, at least from our perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, are other rheumatologists going to do that? Again, I think it depends on whether or not it's within their business plan, right? And mm-hmm. how they actually practice medicine. So that's going to be, that's the highly varied aspect of healthcare providers, unfortunately. But be that as it may, I've just been telling people to follow me on Twitter and I'm trying to contribute as much as I can to you know, people's gaining the knowledge. And I may be wrong with my interpretation too. And so I will easily, I can explain that out though. And so I want them to see how I'm thinking. I think one thing, that's a really good recommendation, um, Dr. Kim, because I follow you. <laughs> Yes, you do. I do. And well, let's get his. What is his Twitter handle? Oh, it, yes. It's Al, at Al H Kim, A L H K I M as in Mary, at Al H Kim. All one word. Yep. And the thing about that is you're friends with a lot of other rheumatologists from all over the world. And mm-hmm. I can look at your thread and see all of the others commenting. And I have learned a lot in the last several weeks just by doing that alone. So I I do think that that is a great recommendation. Obviously, we have some resources, like we're doing this with the AI Arthritis Voices 360. Our plan will be to reach out to all nonprofits from around the world, some that don't have podcast platforms, ask them if they'd like to share any of their resources on here. We will log those. Creaky Joints, we had on, on our last episode, great website. Absolutely fantastic. Um, They have a lot of great resources on there. And then I pulled up the site, Dr. Kim, that you had mentioned. It's COVID-19, the Global Rheumatology Alliance. And that is a registry, a patient-powered COVID-19 registry that is under works. And thank you, Dr. Kim, for inviting me behind the scenes. There are about, like you said, 200 people, different patients. There are patient organizations, rheumatologists that are working really hard to collect that data. and as you mentioned, there's, there's just not a lot of good data out there right now. There's, it's not peer reviewed. The peer review I know is overloaded. And so this site and collecting this specific rheumatology research is going to be extremely important. So um, that the information we're learning within those conversations is also up to us to then disseminate back out to the public. So we'll, we'll for sure do that. So I'm looking forward to the uh, Voices 360 bump. Yeah, me too. I'll I'll report back to you, Tiffany. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that we were just talking about 
with the hydroxychloroquine is that came out this morning. And again, we know that things change every day. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, that was just today as we're speaking announced under the FDA that that would be able to be used for these diseases. Well, instantly social media blew up and the patient community with patients scared that they can't get their treatments. Lupus patients in particular, it was literally my whole feed was just patients saying, what am I going to do? One of them says, I called today. They've already cut my prescription down from 90 days to 30 days. They're scared. So how do we address that when we have fear from the community? What can we do? I mean, I know there's not a lot of answers we we can say right now, but what is your advice or suggestions on that? So, okay, so just to lay out what happens, as soon as there were some Chinese reports that antimalarials were uh, effective in their cohorts of patients uh, infected by coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, the entire world really started to increase its utilization of these medicines. So I can tell you right now in the U.S., there are several different suppliers of hydroxychloroquine. From what we know yesterday, none of them had any supply left. All the supply is now in the regional pharmacies. Okay. We called around in the St. Louis area, and most of the pharmacies still have several hundred tablets of hydroxychloroquine, but they're not going to get any more. So while the government had announced that the FDA had approved it, which is not factually correct, he actually authorized a fast-track designation uh, and of course, it's been, but that's what he's, you know, Trump said was right. proved that's not factual. Okay. Correct. But regardless, what we're hoping is that this inspires other manufacturers to start making it, all right, to be able to add to the supply chain. So again, yeah, I don't care how it happens, but we do need more antimalarials. It is the most effective drug for lupus, no doubt. It's the only drug that's being able to demonstrate survival benefit. Again, the story with COVID-19 is less clear and needs to be studied, but nevertheless, it has generated a great deal of interest, which may be good or bad. But uh, stocks are dwindling. I know from what I can gather on Twitter is that cities like Minneapolis, from what I understand, are completely out. The VA system has uh, restricted use of hydroxychloroquine only to COVID patients. So lupus patients can't get them anymore. Now to reassure lupus patients or patients that are on antimalarials, hydroxychloroquine in particular has a really long half-life. So it takes about 30 to 40 days for your blood levels to drop in half. So if you calculate it out, uh, you're on a stable dose today, but you're stopped today, your blood count would hit zero in about six months. All right. So it lingers in your bloodstream for quite a bit. So we could probably absorb a month or two of a shortage, maybe, all right? Okay. But again, because it's not going to completely get out of your system very quickly. But the bottom line is that the supply chain needs to be reinvigorated. Okay. So so they don't freak out. So we're not <laughs> panicking because no that's a lot I'm of- I'm not freaking out. <laughs> I, I know, but the so that our community, mm-hmm. to assure that they should, with the recommendation, be a, just stay in contact with your rheumatologist to talk about the options- because they are, they're, they're worried that they're going to run out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So, I mean, has that been a recommendation too, Doc, about, I, I just went in and refilled every prescription that I could, just not knowing what was going to happen, but in terms of obviously it's already being limited for the patients, but for other medications, is that kind of a general recommendation of, hey, even if it's not due, get your prescriptions done. We don't know what's going to happen. I wouldn't say it's a recommendation, but that's what I would do for myself. <laughs> Right. I I think it does make sense, especially if you're going to go, you know, with the potential of a hard quarantine. Right. You know, so, you know, stockpiling is just not for canned foods and toilet paper, but it's also related to your medications. We all have to prepare. Yeah. We actually had a question come in this morning about the medications. A lot of our community is on pain medication and there's the whole disbursement and they have to go into a clinic and you know, I know that's not rheumatologist specific, but the, the concept of in order to get something uh, prescribed again, to get it reissued to you, you need to go in. I told her, well, we're going to be talking to Dr. Kim, but uh, I do also know that telemedicine is being highly recommended. I actually just got a notification from WashU. Oh, 
Dr. Kim is also my personal rheumatologist, by the way. Um, I got a notification this morning saying, if you want telehealth, click this button. Um, I was very tempted, but I thought, no, I won't. As I have questions, I said, I got, I got the guy. I got the real guy in a couple hours. <laughs> just ask him. Well, um, my, I have an appointment with my rheumatologist next week. They just called me today. They said they're not seeing patients in the office unless it's an emergency circumstance. So it'll just be a phone. Okay. Uh, phone interview, which totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, other than, you know. You, you miss out on the physical exam and touching the joints, but it, it's worth the risk, I think, of saying, hey, don't, you know, avoid the big risk and just don't come to a hospital or a doctor's office if you don't need to. That actually leads to a really good question, Matt. Dr. Kim, knowing you can't have that physical exam, how does that affect and impact the visit on your end? It makes it harder. <laughs> well, no uh, obviously, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think part of this, um, and this is something that we work really hard with our patients here at WashU, is to educate the patient about what we are doing on the exam or with the type of questions that we're asking and why we're asking them. There are two experts in the room, right? It's the physician and the patient. Mm -hmm. So we can give the patient the right verbiage, the arsenal, to be able to better understand their relationship with their own body and their disease. That helps us a ton. So with our newer patients, so for example, today was the very first day that we moved to telemedicine virtually completely. So right before I came onto this podcast, mm -hmm. we had our telehealth clinic. And while challenging, I was reassured that my patients were listening to me, which frankly surprised me, and that um, it actually was easier than I thought it was going to be. Yes, I would love to confirm some things. Mm -hmm. I would love to confirm some things. But I think the great, the best physicians are the best communicators. And part of that is to be able to figure out how to communicate nonverbal to verbal. And that's something that, again, we've been trying to work with our patients, not like directly or overtly. But this is part of how we are able to uh, get additional pieces of information so that the physical exam really confirms rather than identifies new things. Mm -hmm. So that's something I think as uh, nonprofit organizations that we really should look into our resources and figure out what we have as far as symptom tracking and to be able to help patients communicate in this new wave of doctor's appointments. We've been working on the actual visit. This is now the new actual visit, right? So we have to alter those a little bit. Absolutely. I agree. And I'll just tell you from like a more behind the scenes look within the clinics. Uh, generally, telephone calls are non-billable events for most clinics. But only about two days ago, the uh, CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services now allowed for billing for uh, telephone uh, encounters, which is very helpful. I think for conditions where the labs aren't as effective in diagnosing or monitoring patients. So this is really going to be rheumatology and, of course, psychiatry. Um, there's no lab test for bipolar or schizophrenia, right? So both of those fields are going to benefit a great deal by having uh, this infrastructure in place to be able to make sure that the financial viability is maintained by the clinics. Because rheumatology generally doesn't bill very much. We don't do a ton of procedures. Not like We don't do spine surgery. Good thing. We do bill for infusions, but most of our patients, you know, rather inject themselves at home if they want to, you know, so that, you know, I'm not going to make a decision based off of the fact that, oh, well, you know, I'm going to, the IV allows us to make more money. You know, that's not really in the best interest of the patient. So regardless, that's something behind the scenes that I don't think a lot of people uh, knew about before. No, I, I didn't. I don't know if Matt knew. I didn't. No, I, I, I think it's, well, you know, we talk about how many people are being impacted by this. And of course, healthcare workers are. And the idea of, as a lot of people are not being allowed to work, you, on the other hand, could be working and not getting paid to work, uh, which doesn't work either. And the idea of, yeah, I, I think to, to me, what's going to be interesting is what comes out of this. You know, when you think of 9-11, how the changes we saw, whether it's security at the airport and the idea of, you know, maybe the handshake goes away. Certainly hygiene, I think, will escalate in terms of I'd buy stock in Purell and probably <laughs> toilet paper. But what do you see, Doc? I mean, you know, as we try to say some good lessons coming out of this or, or innovations maybe that will have a positive effect. I mean, do you see more telemedicine in your practice? 
I think you're exactly right, Matt. I think there are, you're, we're going to find more contemporary ways to engage with patients. For example, you know, Washington University, you know, we're in St. Louis. Uh, we have a catchment area. In other words, patients come to us from 500 miles away. Um, and these are for routine visits, right? Mm-hmm. So this is very different than New York City or Boston, right? There's a lot of competition within there, but it's a major pain for them to try to get here. Also, you know, since we have this lupus clinic and we apparently give good care there, uh, we feel like we can provide some of the best care in the country, you know, along with other lupus clinics. But we want to be able to engage people, say, in California or Arizona or Florida or New York or Maine or whatever, to be able to help them too. So I think this is going to force us to be able to reexamine how what communication modalities are used to be able to get meaningful information from patients. It's going to force telemedicine, especially televideo medicine, put forward much faster. Um, it's been popular in the ICUs and certain other specialties, but it's been lagging behind a lot of others, largely because of billing issues, to, you know, to be honest. But I think this is going to force the discussion to be able to get, how do we improve access to me when you don't have to physically be here? And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be probably in the short term, the biggest benefit. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. And it's ironic because I'm sitting here in my office and right in front of me is a ULAR <laughs> that I have I have ripped out. Isn't I mean, it's not very uh, well done, <laughs> but on eHealth, it was a session I just went to at ULAR last year, the European League Against Rheumatism, that the group was really expressing the need to accelerate eHealth. And now here we are. So I know we've got a lot of wonderful folks working on that. They're probably working overtime. But one of the things that I think could be very interesting is there is a shortage of rheumatologists. I mean, I know a lot of patients, especially pediatric rheumatologists. We've got, you know, in the United States alone, 300,000 plus young people affected with this. And they're driving hundreds, if not thousands of miles, in some cases, state lines to, to just to see or get a visit. So this could be quite innovative and quite impactful for our rheumatology community. I agree. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Kim, so we've been talking a little bit about our medications and some recommendations on prevention. And this is something that's affecting me personally, but I'm not alone. I've talked to many, many people who are going through the same thing. This is going to be dependent on country, state, province. It's all different no matter where you are but the access of testing. So I live in the middle of the United States in Missouri, cannot get a test. I have had symptoms for about a week. I do also have asthma on top of everything. So I'm feeling it a lot in my lungs. Got the cough, got the sniffle, got the low-grade fever, got you know the, the muscle aches, all of those things. And I cannot get a test. And so I've self-quarantined. I've done what I need to do. But there are lots of us out there. And we're wondering... How do we handle this? Now, now we have some symptoms. Whether it is or not, can't tell because I'm not going to be able to get tested. But knowing that I'm compromised, my immune system is compromised, is there anything I can do knowing this is just the way it is and I'm going to ride this out? Are there any recommendations for people like me? Yeah, this has been so freaking frustrating. The response in U.S. is you know, the window of opportunity was in January when we had our first reported case, which I believe was January 15th or somewhere around there in Seattle. And I think that the main issue is there are a couple issues, some of them bad luck. The CDC only had a couple labs that could do the test. And when they tried to expand and deliver the test to other labs, they actually had a, a quality control issue with one of the reagents. Again, that's bad luck, but the response was too late still. And so we're lagging behind because there's exponential growth of reported, of of confirmed cases in the U.S. Now, of course, we're only testing those with symptoms. We probably are underestimating the number of cases in the U.S. by five to tenfold. Oh, yeah. So, right, you know, minimally. So um, I know, and I, I meant to look this up, but there is a new home test for coronavirus now that is making some press right now. Oh, I saw that advertised and I didn't yeah. know if that was one of those 
groups that's trying to make some money off of mm-hmm. the hype. And I, I'm glad you brought that up. I saw that yeah. yesterday, actually. So, yeah, I, I don't know specifically the exactly the characteristics of this test, although I think there are a lot of these are pretty standardized. But essentially, and I, I apologize for not remembering the name of the company, but it's $135. They'll mail it out to you with two-day shipping. You can pay an extra $30 to get overnight. This test is not given to everyone. So they actually have licensed physicians who serve as kind of gatekeepers for the company and because it, has, it still has to be prescribed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's is all through the, the company. And then you send it back. So you have to kind of swab yourself or have someone swab either the nose or the back of the throat. And then you, within 72 hours, you get results. Um, and so that's if you can afford the $135 minimally and if you also qualify. Now, I actually don't know what the qualification characteristics are for that company right now. Yeah, I, I'm curious because I can tell you what the little bit that I know as far as the way that the tests are being distributed currently is that it doesn't matter how many symptoms you have. If you're symptomatic and you tick all the boxes like I did when I called and I wanted to go through one of the drive throughs and they said, have you traveled in the last 14 days to a hotspot, which they consider California, New York, you know, there's the, the, the hotspots or abroad. No, I have not traveled. Okay. So now they consider you low risk <laughs> because <laughs> that, that means you can't have it. And, and then the other question is, Okay, well, if you haven't traveled, have you been in contact with somebody who has tested positive? The whole state of Missouri has done about 300 tests. <laughs> so what are the chances that I'm going to know somebody who has tested positive? It's just ridiculous. And so I did call a, the Missouri Department of Health and ask the same questions if I could go to a commercial lab and get it. And they said the same standards are apply because it's based on the CDC requirements. So I'm going to look into that. But yeah, and the other reason I asked about that is because of the research that we mentioned earlier, the registry. And there's people like me living with these diseases we don't know. And I'm personally just charting things. I don't know if I'm going to end up finding out. But it, it really kind of bothers me that rheumatologists are coming together to do research and we don't have any patients to do the research on. And there's some of us that actually could be positive and we're, we're missing out on that data. And so it's just a personal. Well, Dr. Kim, do you have any recommendations for people who are in Tiffany's situation where, you know, you, you think you could have it, you don't have access to a test, but either way, assuming you have it or you're coming down with a fever, are there things you're doing, symptomatic treatment, you know, having a, why am I bothering Inhaler. Inhaler. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, right. So symptomatic treatment is one thing. Um, what we are also recommending is uh, strict self-quarantining just because, you know, flattening the curve is the right concept here. It, it works. Uh, we know it works. The problem is, is that it's, it's hard. Um, it's, it's hard to self-quarantine. But the key thing is that the viral titers or the amount of virus that you have in your bloodstream was most likely going to be higher in those who are immunosuppressed, and you may shed more virus into the air. And there's some nice data from uh, last yesterday or a couple of days ago showing that uh, aerosolized SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus that causes COVID, can last in the air. Aerosolized, you know, usually about a day, but up to three or four days in the air. It also can last on surfaces like plastic and stainless steel for three days. Mm-hmm. So it can linger around for a while, and so. If you're shedding a lot of virus, you could actually be part of the problem unintentionally. So that's what we are recommending. And, and let's assume that you actually don't have it. Those symptoms likely would pass, assuming it's not influenza, for example, um, if it's a, a traditional cold. Right. And so um, you, we will know relatively quickly. But I mean, again, I have patients in the same mm-hmm. situation. Two of them right now reported today yeah. that I suspect has COVID and we're stuck. We're stuck. Yeah. One of the things that I'll add for the recommendations is just something I've done personally. So if you are out there and you're dealing with this, and and thanks for that extra information, Dr. Kim, about the fact that we could be more contagious based on our diseases, but I've been taking extra measures. I walk around with a, when I go outside, like to take my dog for a walk, I use a Clorox antibacterial cloth to open the doorknobs just to, so I'm not touching anything that anybody in my apartment, because I live in an apartment. 
I don't live in a in a house. And I also notified the apartment complex and let them know I am not positive. I do not have access to a test, but I want you to be aware because that could affect the way others become responsible and response to this. We have we we were talking before this about a lot of the parties that are still going on, <laughs> um, but there's some people who are not adhering, and we have a lot of college students in this apartment complex. They have parties upstairs all the time, so you know I want to be make sure that I'm doing my responsibility. So if you do think there's a chance, just I'm just saying from my perspective and things that I've done, just try to notify the right people so that they at least are aware, especially because they have cleaning people. They have other people that come in and do maintenance in the building and just to be respectful and to do your due diligence and your responsible responses to do what you can to make sure nobody else gets infected with whatever it is, whatever virus this is that I'm dealing with. I think that's right. So I wanted to add that as well. Matt, did you have any other questions for for Dr. Kim, there were a few things that you wanted to ask him, I know, while we had this. No, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things we, you know, I, and I'm, I know there's not much concrete data, but in terms of the self-quarantining, they're estimating two weeks. And do we know, you know, have we seen, I've heard onset of symptoms, could be five days on the average, but could be less, could be more. I mean, it, you know, it, the struggle, I think, is, okay, you're self-quarantining. At what point do you say, all right, it looks like, I'm out of the clear other than just two weeks mm-hmm. blank. Is there any any other data that suggests when it's shedding, how long the onset is, or is this still, we're yeah, all we're, just figuring this out? So yeah, we're, we're still just figuring this out. And to me, the two weeks is a bit arbitrary. Yeah, It may actually be a little bit longer. So there are discussions amongst the infectious disease epidemiologists about, let's say that in sometime in May, things return to normal. Do we expect to have a second pulse in the summer? All right. Again, you know, part of our job is to consider every possibility, regardless if it's going to be true or not. And so there have been some discussions, not to put fear in, but this again, this is a probably a low likelihood event. But this is something that again we're we're discussing because we're not sure if the two weeks is is the right time frame. Again, it just seemed reasonable. Part of it is that the incubation period of the virus for COVID is about two weeks. And I think during that time, you can distinguish whether or not it's a cold or uh, something more serious, uh, something like influenza, which will give you a lot more, say, muscle aches, but you know, somewhat similar symptoms to COVID. So uh, that two weeks allows you to be to distinguish kind of if you treated every person like they were in the textbook. But again, I think you know, it, seems a li- it does seem a little arbitrary. That was another good point, I think, Dr. Kim. Obviously, the flu is still going on. Mm-hmm. Colds are going on. Allergies are going on. So as we look at the symptoms, the latest, that you could say, how do you differentiate suspected corona from flu versus cold versus something else, allergies? Yeah, yeah. So this actually is a great question. So um, we can start easiest with allergies because there's a lot of itchiness associated with that, particularly in the nose and the eyes. Uh, allergies are you know, really uh, mm-hmm. you know, driven by histamine, and it causes a very itchy response, what we call a pruritic response. A common cold is going to be something that is relatively fleeting. You might be affected by a few days, so the kinetics of that you know, could tell you a great deal of information. The hardest one is going to be flu versus COVID and other respiratory viruses. So what we've been told, and I actually don't know the data for this, is that if you have, say, influenza, it's really unlikely you'll get infected by the uh, COVID virus. Really? <laughs> We just said that in unison. <laughs> really? That surprises me. Yeah. So that we're, yeah, we're being told that by the laboratories. And so I don't know if that's hundred percent true, sure. but what that's, what that's mandating is that in order to get in our system here, if you're going to get tested for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you need to have a clean respiratory viral panel, which includes influenza and other respiratory viruses that uh, cause more severe issues than just a common cold. But between flu and COVID, I think the key differentiation there is that flu really gives you kind of this body-wide achiness. Uh, That's really kind of like a main distinguishing feature. We're learning more about COVID though. Uh, Diarrhea is probably an under-recognized primary symptom 
especially in young people, along with shortness of breath, the fever may or may not be there. So again, this, the, guideline, the screening guidelines for the tests aren't contemporizing with the newer data, but of course, these data are coming out you know, within the past few days too, right? Well, and the virus itself is only, what, three right. plus months old. So I, you know, we're do- doing the best. That's interesting you said that, Dr. Kim, because the data that I've seen, and, and mainly because I'm in the Room COVID Alliance group, and there's a lot of research that shared, there were two things that stood out to me. The first was the fever. You mentioned, I mean, that we're walking around in the United States and everybody is getting take their temperature taken. That's the golden ticket to, you know, do not pass go if you have a temperature. But the data showing not everybody even has a fever. And I know there was some published in China that it was something like 44 to 45 percent in the early phases had no fever, even when they got into the hospital. And we're walking around. I couldn't even get a thermometer the other day. I could not get what I go to the store and there is a sign that says maximum five thermometers per person. Wow. And I thought, five. who needs five thermometers? Like what? And, and the thing is, is, I mean, maybe if you're thinking you don't want to share it because you'll you'll pass it. But you know that the same people who bought the five thermometers wiped out all the cleaning stuff, too. So they could just they could just sterilize it. Um, but that was interesting. I also saw something shared about eyes that eyes have been an indicator, uh, somebody who has pre-existing eye conditions and that there was some conjunctivitis that was detected as well in some of the patients. I haven't heard anything about that here. Yes, yeah. So um, so that paper from China, um, the percentages are, are relatively low. I believe it was 10% or even a little bit less than that. But still, if you're going to screen and they don't have any of the other typical symptoms mm-hmm. in Constellation, they may just have one or two. If they have conjunctivitis, so this is just going to be kind of red, potentially watery eyes, then that you know fits into the kind of the risk calculation that you're you know kind of subjectively putting together mm-hmm. in the head. Yeah, that, I mean, it's just there's so there's so much that's going to be coming out. That's for sure. Matt, did you have any other questions about that? You know, the the, the one other thing is okay. So worst case scenario, you do have the virus. I've heard sort of different standards as to when to go to the hospital, when to actually seek care. And it sounds like respiratory conditions are the main concern. So as far as mortality, is it secondary infections with pneumonia or is it the overwhelming of your your lungs and just this inflammatory response that is the biggest threat? Yeah. So you're right, Matt, that it's respiratory failure from something called acute respiratory distress syndrome that we think is the primary etiology of death in COVID infections. So so respiratory uh, complaints, if it becomes that you're short of breath at rest, you feel like we have to work to breathe because eventually your diaphragm, which is a muscle, and that's your breathing muscle, can fatigue. So if you already have compromised lung function because of infection, and now you couple that by a fatigued diaphragm, you are going to lose oxygen in your bloodstream. So that's something that we have to be aware of. I think high fevers is another one because there are um, some data from China suggestive that the hyperinflammatory state that's seen in a small fraction of patients with COVID, you know, the main feature of that is a high fever, so above like 39.4 Celsius, which I think is like 103. I don't remember. I just I just work in the Celsius world. But then uh, lab tests can be done to help confirm kind of the severity or at least classify you within the higher risk or, you know, kind of more of a moderate risk. So to me, I think those are going to be the two main things. Almost everyone that's uh, symptomatic and hospitalized, they have extreme fatigue and malaise. So that's something that is also seen, but that's not necessarily the reason for hospitalization. It's really kind of this high fever that can't be controlled and also the airway issues and the breathing issues. That was a really good point about the shortness of breath at rest. Because that it is, it is such a question. That was really, really a great one, Matt. Because who you don't know. I mean, everyone's saying don't go, don't go to the ER unless it's a complete emergency. Don't go to these care units, these areas set up because you you don't know if you're if you're going to be exposed to it if you go. So uh, knowing when fair to say, not breathing would be an emergency. Yeah, that's a good. And we're told, (laughs) and we're taught that it leads to poor outcomes. Apparently, who knew? (laughs) Yes. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. Who knew? 
Med school, <laughs> med school <laughs> teaches you some radical things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the other thing that we we did want to touch on too was the idea of, of social distancing. That's that's a lot of people's new normal. But I know, you know, Matt, you and I, we've li- we've lived with these conditions for a long time, and sometimes social distancing is is our normal, you know, if we're yeah. worried about being uh, our immune system or being exposed to to things. But this is taking some things to a to a whole new level <laughs> as far as uh, we have to all be quarantined where there's different levels again where you are in the world. And that leads into a lot of questions about social support and reaching out to others and and not feeling the effects of isolation. I know you did this. I told you I saw you the other night, Matt, on Twitter. <laughs> you yeah. were you did a great a great job. So, what what kind of creative recommendations would you say of you know keeping ourselves entertained, connected? It's just what you said, connection. I think to me, look, social media is a tool, and it can be very good or it can be very bad. Right now, I think there is a lot of misinformation and sensationalizing and panic, and reading Twitter and constantly refreshing to see the infection numbers continue to elevate. I, I, you, at a certain point, you're like, good to be informed, but too much information, particularly when you don't know what's accurate, I think can really be overwhelming. And I think you know, go, going into social media with a plan, don't just go on there and scroll through it. And I think the idea about have your informational ones. So we're going to follow at Al H. Kim and follow some of these websites that are more informational, CDC, mm-hmm. but for me, it's been, you know, I'm really looking towards entertainment. I do stand up comedy. And I see a lot of comedians who are doing shows in their living room. Yeah. And just broadcasting out there. Is that going to happen? Are you, are you giving us a, I, I a preview? I, 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 <laughs> you I heard may. it here, folks. Uh, the, the reality is when you do comedy in LA, you performed in front of one person before. Right, right. So we're used to small crowds. But I think, you know, for me, the thing that people miss is connection. Mm-hmm. And people think texting or FaceTime, what we're doing with the camera when you see someone else. My family, we have a family meeting on Zoom uh, this evening. My parents subscribe. We're all, my brother, his wife, my niece, my parents uh, in Denver, we're all, we're all going to be on there and be together. And I think there is something where being socially quarantined or isolating yourself physically, but not doing it emotionally. And, and I think any way where you can actually see someone and hear a voice, even if it is just on a camera, I think FaceTiming people uh, is is just an invaluable way to feel this connection because for so many people, we're just at the beginning. And, you know, as Dr. Kim can attest, you know, I, I think we're hearing two months before we start to come out the other side where we're talking about people really being in a, in a fairly isolated state potentially for a long period of time. So I think finding these outlets is going to be key for your mental health. And mm-hmm. that's something I think that... And, Dr. Kim, again, you see this too. We often treat the physical and forget the mental element and treating us as well people. And I think there is so much of that right now in terms of getting out and just walking around your block, getting outdoors, getting some activity. I I know that's been something I'm not going to, you can't go to the gym. The gyms are shut down. So figuring out ways to be active because we know motion is lotion for a lot of us. And if we're not moving, we really start to feel that too. No, absolutely. Yeah. Same thing with the lungs. I know and just making sure that deep breathing and, and exercising, if, if this is impacting the lungs, want to make sure that we figure something out <laughs> for that. For that. No. So I think this is something that uh, Tiffany and I have discussed before on the previous podcast. And the one thing that she brought up that really resonated with me was, you know, the physician visit is actually also emotional. And this is something that I, I kind of knew, but didn't articulate in that particular type of style with that word. And so it's made me fully understand about, you know, what is quality of life? What is to, you know, experience uh, a certain condition, um, whether it is a cold or COVID or any other autoimmune disease. I think this is something that we don't do the best job of. And uh, this is, again, uh, that podcast actually changed even a little bit more how I interact with people. Really? And, yeah. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you on that. It was really interesting because, again, the way you articulated, Tiffany, gave me actually the actual words to think about, okay, that's exactly what I've been thinking, but I couldn't really crystallize it. But again, it is about kind of what you know, Matt brought up. It's like 
you know, there are things that do make me happy that I need to return to or I have to modulate in order to maintain a certain level of quality of life or a certain level of satisfaction with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And Matt, just to fill you in and, and people who are listening, what Dr. Kim was referring to, and we'll link to that episode as well for this, but we were talking about how physicians have their perspective going in to a visit and what their outcomes are. And I said, you know, we've got years of maybe being told there's nothing wrong with you. You look too young. You're an athlete. You know, you can't, there's not, there's no way that this could happen to you. Your blood work looks fine. All of these things. So we're going in these thinking, oh my gosh, so if my medication's working good, are they going to pull me off of it a bit? Mm -hmm. There's just so many things that happen. And so I had explained, we go in with a complete emotional kind of baggage, if you will, of, of our whole life, our whole history of what has happened before we walked into that office. And that actually leads us to kind of that point that we were talking about before with not even being understood. And I think that if anything out of this COVID-19 that may be beneficial for our community is being able to highlight that immunocompromised people are not only elderly. Mm -hmm. They're not. There's a hashtag going around that started a few days ago. I've participated in it, high-risk COVID-19. And people are sharing their images and saying, you know, in in light of COVID-19, remember me. Remember that this could happen to me. You could be going out and infecting me. And, And I think being able to educate the world on our diseases is going to be an opportunity that we'll have. And I know, Dr. Kim, you did some research on social support. And one of the big things is that either doctors or our own peers don't understand our diseases sometimes. Right. Yeah. And maybe we could use this as an opportunity to do that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, autoimmune disease is largely invisible. And so people don't recognize it a priori when they meet someone. So they use assumptions that, oh, they look, look just, just like me. They're, you know, we can do the same things. We can break a couple of rules in terms of social distancing or going to the bar or restaurant. But the reality is, is that because it looks invisible, um, you guys can't get that sense of validation that is required to be able to make sure, like, say, listen, I am actually high risk. And if they continue to disrespect that, you know, that puts you in a lot of jeopardy. Right. And so it's not, it's more than just social support at that point. It's actually then something more like tangible physical health that, you know, and so that's something that is an important point to bring up. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that we'll be able to, to make something of an awareness campaign out of all of this. Was there anything else that uh, we missed on what we wanted to talk about today? <laughs> <laughs> We have we have Brian to edit that out. Yeah. So <laughs> no, that leave it in because the clear answer is we covered it. Yeah, we we've covered done, everything. We've fact, done yeah, it. Yeah, we found the. I think we found the cure. We're done. Yeah, we're done here. The amazing trio. Uh, okay, so well, in saying that, then this is a continued conversation, a continued series. We will be doing these episodes as long as necessary to get the information out to the public. So I definitely will be visiting back here with Dr. Kim when we meet with some other rheumatologists who have shown interest in weighing in on this. So uh, we'll do some more with that. Matt, you are always welcome to come back if, if you would like, and we'll be watching you on, on wherever you are now, if you're in social distancing, we'll tune in wherever you're, you're tuning in on. Well, Ninja Warrior Jr. is on every Friday night on okay. Universal Kids. So you can watch people being active outdoors since we can't. <laughs> watch these kids doing it. There you go. So, well, I definitely will tune in on that. And Matt, where can people find you? Twitter at Matt Eisman and Instagram, M-A-T-T-I-S-E-M-A-N. I'm online way too much. Find me there and TV. I don't know. Ninja Warrior on Friday nights, Ninja Junior. We'll see what happens with everything else. Everything else is postponed indefinitely right now. So some free time. Unless you do that, that living room free comedy show for us. Oh, I'll, I'll be, I'll be online. I'll be doing some okay. ridiculous stuff on social media. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. And then just for those tuning in as well, we have set up on our nonprofit social media sites, which are Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at IFAI Arthritis. 
We have a group set up now on Facebook where we will be posting links to all of these episodes and you can join in conversations on there. We're also adding a space for you to submit questions, whether that be to talk to others online or privately. And then we will use that information to feedback to our doctors and the other professionals that we're talking to and get some answers for you. So you can also find all of our podcast episodes at AIarthritis.org backslash podcast. And other than that, I just want to really thank you, Matt, and thank you, Dr. Kim, for joining me today in this important series that we're doing. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, really appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right. So thank you all for tuning in. And remember, just because the conversation is over here, it does not mean that it is over. So join us, pull up a seat at the table and weigh in on the conversation. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. Thank you.